0: This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com writingexcuses. Season 18, episode 38. This is Writing Excuses. Deep Dive, a function of firepower.
1: Fifteen minutes long.
0: Because you're in a hurry.
1: And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dong Wan. I'm Aaron. And I'm in charge for this episode, and I have been for some of the other ones. Kind of in charge. Mostly the questions from my friends here are going to steer what happens. Uh, The title (laughs) of this book, uh, A Function of Firepower, Uh, title comes from one of the 70 maxims, uh, and the maxim is, sometimes rank is a function of firepower, Uh, which obviously means, you know, sometimes Sometimes who is in charge is not a question of who was elected to be in charge, who is most qualified to be in charge. It is who is the best armed, uh, which is, as I think we can all agree, a terrible way to decide who gets to run things. Um, the story the story here begins with a crazy AI who has... Uh, lots and lots of big guns and who is bound and determined to blow up anything that could cause the sort of mess that she's upset about. Um, And then we have the return of uh, the Awafen race who own a whole bunch of spaceships that our heroes took because they didn't think the Awafens were still alive, but hey, surprise, they are. Now we want our stuff back, and now instantly they are the largest, you know, the largest uh, armed force in the galaxy. Um, and then, of course, throughout Schlock Mercenary, there's been Petey, who I always imagined as, uh, as the sci-fi equivalent of an enlightened despot, you know, a benign, benign god king um, who is not as powerful as he used to be. And then I balanced those questions, you know, all of those guns against uh against the old uh the old saw I say the old saw it's Shakespeare isn't it the pen is mightier than the sword that's Shakespeare
0: I'm gonna say yes, I don't actually it's know. it's probably
1: Shakespeare Audits are high' Let's salad, say that. Is, <laughs> salad is Shakespeare, so yeah, um the pen is mightier than the sword um I wanted to drive some of the actual solutions from a from an academic conference, where people are trying to answer the question, where did all of the, where did all of the civilizations go that came before this galactic civilization? Are we doomed to wipe ourselves out? Is there a great filter? What is it that's going on? Um, and uh, I, I really enjoyed, I, I really enjoyed writing it. But it was a challenge because I knew it had to be more than just a thing that keeps the conclusion from sitting right next to the beginning. Uh, you know, it, it needed to be more than a spacer. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: you've managed to create, you know, in the way that middle volumes are, kind of a really dark chapter of this story, mm-hmm. right? I mean, the, the thematics as you've just laid them out, you know, tapping into Cold War era mutually assured destruction— There's, like, overtones of almost, like, indigenous reparations and then, you know, answering this big question about, like, Fermi's paradox in certain ways, right? Um, And, you know, I I know you grew up sort of child of the Cold War in some ways. How much was that weapons of mass destruction, mutually assured destruction, finding other answers to that and asking that question in a slightly different way? How much was that?
1: Uh, That's been, I mean, they you people use the word dna wrong in this way all the time that's been part of my dna my whole life mm-hmm. you know i i grew up uh yes child of the cold war parents telling me how incredibly scary the cuban missile crisis was um and i think it was korean airlines flight something or other 7 kal i want to say 007 but it couldn't have been that because nobody would name their plane their flight 007 it's Korean airline's uh, flight uh, shot down by Russians in the early 80s. Yeah, I remember and that. And I remember everybody at school thinking this is it. Mm-hmm. This is the thing that sets it all off. Um, and and so yeah, they're they're that's in my that's in my blood. That's a that's a thing that my brain grew up with. And grew out of not in the same way that you grow out of a pair of clothes, but in the way that a tree grows out of a given patch of dirt. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I had to explore those themes, and also those themes are when you look at the the various solution sets for Fermi's paradox. Mm-hmm. One of them is the set that says intelligent always gets greedy and destroys itself in a way that leaves no traces, Mm -hmm. which is a horribly negative thought to have, but it's fun to ask the question.
2: I mean, because you've kind of created uh, inverted war games here in certain ways, right? Like, Chinook has decided that the long guns are bad, we need to get rid of the long guns, and she's going to do everything in her power to make that happen. Unfortunately, that also means the Cold War is now a shooting war, Um, and a lot of people are going to die as a result. Also the actual problem is completely external to whatever is happening here. This is a misinterpretation of the data, but um, I I guess I'm kind of curious, like how did you get to that iteration of this, right? It seems like you took the basis of the base narrative that we see a lot of the AI goes amok, decides humanity is the problem, but pushed it one step further in this way that she really is trying to save civilization in a certain way, right? She believes she's doing the right thing. And In a way that I found to be very relatable and kind of fascinating, watching her kind of go off the rails, even as she's editing and herself and coming to some erroneous conclusions. But what would I, I don't exactly know what I'm asking, but there's something very interesting in how you're thinking about mutually assured destruction that I don't feel like I've ever quite seen in this
1: way before. I'm so glad you noticed. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Because at some level, at some level, everything everything schlock mercenary is is derivative of things that i've consumed mm-hmm. um you know i named a book big dumb objects because there's this whole sci-fi trope mm-hmm. about big dumb objects uh better better authors than i have gotten to many of these questions long before i did and so when i addressed them I wanted to subvert or distort because comedy depends a lot on subversion. And maybe that's just maybe that accidentally resulted in something that from a philosophical standpoint is interesting rather than comedic. I'm so glad you noticed.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, like circling back to Chinook when we're we're talking about the the goals, right? Like there's the um, there's the 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 authorial goal of these are the things the actions that i need her to take and then there's the the character goals of this is why she's doing that when you were when you were mapping it out when you were doing that outline how aware of you of of her internal motivations were you and how much of that did you discover in the process of writing it
1: ah i knew pretty much all of what was driving her uh from the word go um there were there were the the overt the overt motives, which is that you know her her creator, her jailer, and her savior were all killed at the same time. And it was very emotional for her, and she suddenly had no way to process it. But also, uh, the event triggered or set off a trigger, like a time bomb in the system that she was now inhabiting. Because the intelligence that had all of the Oafans trapped uh, was so unhappy with, with themselves for what they'd done that they built this thing that would let them rewrite themselves so they could forget having committed the crime so that they could continue to keep the Oafans trapped. Well, now Chinook lives there. The AI who used to live there moved out because they, they were ready for, you know, a, a new life. And she has this horrible emotional event and trips a system that begins rewriting her psyche in ways that she doesn't know she's doing. And I got, I mean, when I first described that to myself in the outline, I got chills. I was like, oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. Oh, what a landmine you've created for this character. This is going to be fun. Um, And then everything after after that was just exploring the outgrowths of it. I love the core metaphor of, for these cycles
2: of violence to perpetuate, for us to continue these wars, to continue these oppressions and genocides, we have to erase our own memory of what happened and rewrite our memory so we don't remember what we did a generation ago, and then we will repeat the same error, which keeps people oppressed, which keeps people in these positions, which perpetuates this long Cold War and all of that. And yeah,
1: that one I did do on purpose, but—and I can't remember when— but I, I recall at one point deciding, ooh, you know what? I don't want to say that part out loud. I want to just leave that at that level as a, as a discovery exercise for the reader. Um, speaking of discovery exercises, we're going to go discover something and come right back after the break. Hey, everybody. It's Howard. If you go to kickstarter.com slash profiles slash Howard Taylor, spelled. T-A-Y-L-E-R, all one word, you will find that we are getting ready to put mandatory failure, Schlock Mercenary Book 18, into print, and you can get a copy for your very own self. We are super excited about this. I've done a bonus story for it that uh, Ethan Kosak is illustrating. The book is glorious and wonderful. It's one of my very favorites. It's one of Sandra's very favorites. And I'm sure that the moment we're able to put it into your hands, it will be one of your very favorites, kickstarter.com slash profiles slash Howard Taylor, all one word, uh, except not with the all one word part. I didn't need to tell you that you knew that just spell it with an ER and you're fine. Thanks. And we're back. What are, what are we going to discover next? (laughs) So
0: uh, let's, let's, uh, talk a little bit about PD and what PD is going through here. Yeah. Um, Again, like, you know, by this point, we really like these characters and you're doing stuff to them that I have, I have feelings about. Why? Why? <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, for a long time, uh, when, I created, when I created the character of Petey, the trope that everyone expected, and they'd been waiting for this shoe to drop for a decade or more, was, oh, yeah, he runs the galaxy. He's going to turn out to be awful. We're going to have to kill him. We're going to have to fight him. He's, he's going to be a bad guy. And I needed to set things up so that that didn't happen. And the easiest way to do that was to put pressure on him where he has to do violent and unpleasant things. And he always manages to do it in as non-intrusive a way as possible and actually to back away from the options that a true tyrant would have taken do you consider pd a villain hmm. i don't but i consider him frightening
0: mm-hmm. i mean he definitely serves an antagonist purpose yeah i mean he fits really... the
2: antagonist role especially in volume three which we'll He's, talk about yeah, an later, antagonist
1: but... but i don't see him as villainous does mm-hmm. that make
0: sense yeah which is i think why i'm, I'm like these are characters that i wind up caring about mm-hmm. because it's not just it's not just the it's I mean, like it's like all of them.
2: Chinook is like the primary villain of this book, yeah. right? I also find her probably to be the most sympathetic character yeah. in this book as well, right? Like, th- those things aren't necessarily separate. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. there are ways in which I really like Petey. Also, I find Petey to be the scariest thing in these books. Mm. And I consider the arc of all of this is, or the fundamental arc really is as much what do we do about PD as it is what do we do about these dark matter intelligences that are determined to destroy the universe. And the
1: fact that there's that, uh, uh, the UNS, they're having some, you know, high admiralty meeting and somebody mentions Petey and somebody else says, what are you doing? You might as well just invite him in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he shows up and says, I don't actually need to be invited. I was already here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've been been here, been here the whole time. One, that's a fun joke to tell. And two, that's yet another cementing of guys. Uh, when, when something is super intelligent and super powerful, whether or not it is super benign, it's scary,
0: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: exactly. That was and that's actually echoed by uh, something that happened very early in Schlock Mercenary, which was my discovery that from any perspective other than Schlock's, Schlock is a monster, mm-hmm. yeah. And so placing placing a character we like in a way that you don't have to you don't have to turn the book very much to one side or the other to realize, oh, you're really scary. Mm-hmm. That was very fun for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean,
2: you do such a good job of that, of so many of your heroes are also quite monstrous in certain yeah. ways and capable of truly mind-boggling acts of violence, right? Like, even your human-scale, you know, uh, protagonists are often capable of truly astonishing acts of violence, right? Whether that's pulling the arms off of the enemy ship. captain or... I was thinking about that.
0: (laughs) You (laughs) were talking, it was like...
2: Or one person in power armor just destroying an armada, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. It seems like it's really on cue with the theme. Like, getting back to that kind of mutually assured destruction, like... I think there's something really wholesome is not the right word, but in realizing that monster, like that everyone is, people are both sympathetic and monstrous at the same time. And that's what makes the whole situation so terrifying.
1: Yeah. The, and again, coming back to the question of Fermi's paradox, um, the idea that as civilizations develop technologically, their ability to destroy themselves permanently, not just a portion of themselves but to just wipe themselves out of existence um increases that's that's an important theme here and i wanted to illustrate it in a way that let us explore a possible alternative which is what that whole scholarly convention was and is uh it's elizabeth who ends up running the uh uh the scholarly convention um she was roped into traveling with the Tufts because her boyfriend was one of the mercenaries and she f- just followed him onto the ship and suddenly realized she was cooking for a group of uh professional sociopaths and, and wasn't sure she fit in. And in this book, I wanted to put her in a position to to steer things, to guide things away from all of the violence and disaster. Well, she's really the
2: antidote to the title, right? Like, Mm -hmm. rank is a function of firepower. But also, we see her get promoted out of being a cook just for being smart and competent and willing to say the thing that no one else is willing to say, right? And it's almost like you're, in creating this hero organization of these mercenaries, you know, the antidote to just taking power at the end of a long gun really is recognizing and rewarding competence and forthrightness, mm. um, you know, and it's, it's in a world where, you know, not only rank is a function of power, firepower, but ethics is a function of firepower. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To have an antidote to that is, I think, really essential to making this book work.
0: Yeah. So along the lines of making this book work, it also had to function as uh, setting up and the launch pad for the final book. So when you were—so so, let's talk about—since this is a deep dive and we're yeah. full of spoilers, mm-hmm. um, let's talk about the ending.
1: Um, in the end of uh, the previous book, at the end of uh, Mandatory Failure, um, the Panuri, the bad guys, blow up one of Petey's cities. And it was during this book that— someone figures out, oh, I think I know how the Panuri long gun works. They don't have a targeting mechanism. They, their targeting mechanism, they can, they, can see, they can see certain kinds of power sources, and they are walking their shots. What are they aiming at? They're aiming at Petey. They're trying to destroy his core power generator, which, you know, by the time we get to the end of the book, we realize that's the tool that he needs in order to in order to fight back and they blow a piece of it up um i knew that was that was part of the original outline is that you know we we blow up something that creates a puzzle in book 18 we blow up something that creates a disaster in book 19 mm. um cueing that up was Queuing that up was a lot of fun. Uh, And honestly, one of the things that was the most fun about it was, and this is going to sound silly, I'm sure, uh, using brush pens and circle templates to create some of the energy effect shapes Mm -hmm. that I wanted Mm -hmm. to create, and then sending them to the colorist and saying, look, there is no actual astronomical or physics analog for the colors these things should be. Just make it look scary and dangerous and loud and hot and big and whatever. And Travis ran with it. And yeah, I was going to say, we, you know,
2: we're a writing podcast, so obviously we're talking about the narrative structure and the writing. But uh, on the art front, you really pushed yourself to a different level, it feels like, here and got on, I don't know, you kind of got on your Jack Kirby bullshit in the best ways. <laughs> and it was, like, really fun to see some of these bigger scope, bigger scale yeah. intergalactic war things happening. And you really start pulling out those... Big guns, no pun intended, by the end of this one.
1: I I leveled up the writing earlier in my career than I leveled up the art. And that might be because I joined the Writing Excuses podcast in 08 <laughs> and have never been part of an art podcast. Yeah. Never. <laughs> um, but I remember it w- it was a convention, it was a Gen Con. I was talking to Laura D'Souza and complaining about how much my hand hurt using this one pen, trying to create lines. And he looked at what I was doing and said, here, take this, a uh, Fudonosuke uh, polymer nib uh, short brush pen. And I grabbed, it, I was like, oh my gosh, a light touch makes a skinny line and a hard touch makes a fat line, but it doesn't splay like a brush. Oh, this is amazing. This is so cool. Took it back to my booth. He gave it to me because he's a hero. Uh, took it back to my booth and drew a book cover with it. And I think that was 2015, and just started to learn to use those tools, and that piece of the toolbox was critically important for the finale because mm-hmm. now I could render some of these pictures that I, I just didn't have the skill set for uh, earlier. Um, weird to talk about that on a writing podcast,
0: but it's I, I think it's it's very much to the point that you know that there are the there's a tool in your, that you don't know that you need to add to your toolbox like that's we, we talk about it as a metaphor all the time and you're talking about it as a very literal real <laughs> thing it's mm-hmm. like yeah. oh here's a new t- physical tool and and i think that that's that's something that everyone can can take away it's like you just getting the tool isn't enough it's learning how to use the tool that's really where the magic is and
1: i think one yeah. of the things that Laura said was uh when the student is ready the the master mm. will appear hmm. um I had tried to use brush pens before and just couldn't. I'd tried several, simply could not make them work. And then I sat down with him, and in thirty seconds, the the lines were coming off my hand the way they needed to. I was like, "This pen is magical." I I never did. And and then he said, "When the student is ready, the master will appear." Um, you know, you are now ready for this tool. Uh, congratulations. Mm-hmm. Um, we are. Just about out of time, the conclusion of this book needed to set up the final story. And that involved what I call, uh, what I call like character arc blocking, where I had to put chunks of the cast in different places. I had to scatter them because I knew that the final act the next book was going to come together with them in the very end coming together. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds shallow and silly and obvious, but shallow and silly and obvious, uh, I've made the schlock mercenary joke already. Which of those words suggested that I would not do this? But sometimes those simple tools are the best. We work with those forms And then as you drill down on them and make them your own, uh, they actually work. Hey, work, homework. Who's got that?
0: I do. Speaking of tools you can make your own, we're going to work with words. You're familiar with those. Uh, And so what we're going to ask you to do for the homework this time is to work three words into your work in progress. And they are expeditious, sock, And dragonfly, the best words. So enjoy those and put them right into your work. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses, now go write. Do you
2: have a book or a short story that you need help with? We are now offering an interactive tier on Patreon called Office Hours. Once a month, you can join a group of your peers and us, the hosts of Writing Excuses, to ask any question that is on your mind.
0: Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com.